Welcome to Dreamland, a program dedicated to an examination of areas in the human experience not easily nor neatly put in a box. Things seen at the edge of vision, awakening a part of the mind as yet not mapped, and yet things every bit as real as the air we breathe but don't see. This is Dreamland. Good evening, another Sunday, another Dreamland. It's going to be a good one. Linda Howe is still in Britain. She's got new information on the Santilli film, the one to be repeated, I might add, with new footage here in the USA tomorrow night, the one that purports to be of an alien, uh, shall we say, examination, autopsy, shredding very nearly. Um, it's serious stuff, and she'll have a new report for us as well as a guest herself. That will be followed by John Anthony West, who is not an archaeologist, but an Egyptologist. And uh, we've got all kinds of fascinating things to talk with him about. And uh, so it's going to be a very, very interesting dreamland, uh, as would be the case with our newest affiliate, KVEG in Las Vegas. Uh, Last-minute apparent uh, technical difficulties are going to present, uh, prevent them from airing the program this week, but uh, trust me, it will be on uh, as should be next week. So there you've got it, and we'll get on to it all in a moment. I want to remind my audience of two very, very important things. One is um, our deadline for subscription to the newsletter. The deadline for ordering that newsletter is midnight Pacific time tonight, or when this program goes off the air. Um, you don't, so that's it. I mean, if you want it, you've got to begin dialing now, and you've got to get through by the end of the program. To order the newsletter, simply call 1-800-917-4278, 1-800-917-4278. In addition, I have new photographs available on our bulletin board as of right now. One is entitled Roof, R-O-O-F dot G-I-F. It is a picture of something indescribable above a roof with a man standing on the roof. Download it. You tell me what it is. The second photograph is simply entitled Alien dot G-I-F. It is a photograph of an alien apparently also uh, in some sort of autopsy situation, it would appear. And the third is entitled Earth.GIF. All brand new, all on our bulletin board. You can get into our bulletin board by calling area code 702-727-1709. 702-727-1709. Linda Howe coming up in just one moment. The and the first thing uh, we try to find out is if the portrait really is from 1947, because, I mean, and this is the major point, this is the connection to the UFO crash, and here's the coral, which is alleged to have happened um, at June the 1st, 1947. Uh, the first checking was with Kodak, and, uh, and Kodak was informed about the and geometric year marking on the print, and uh, Kodak Hollywood um, replied to Ray Santilli on uh, June 28th of this year that um, the original negative stock was definitely manufactured in Rochester, New York, in either 1947 or 1967. Now, 
to say for sure which of the two possibilities we have, um, you have to make a chemical analysis because in the 1950s, Koda changed the film material, the film stock, from what they had before, which was acetate, um, propionate uh, material, to um, triacetate, and with the both chemical uh, um, termini for, uh, for safety film. And um, so the important thing was to check out um, the original material. So Ray Santilli was willing to give a piece of the original 16 millimeter autopsy film with images on it to Bob Sell, a certified FBI phototechnical consultant. Mm -hmm. And um, I just got four days ago the summary, the full report by Bob Sell, and he came to the conclusion that it is definitely without a shadow of a doubt 1947 original film. And more than that, he wrote that um, you can use it only, you could use this type of film only for two years. So it must have been exposed between 1947 and 1949. Wow. And it would be impossible to take unexposed Super Double X film from 1947 and then expose it today and get any sort of usable image. So we can clearly exclude any photographic fake or forgery. All right, let me be clear, Michael. Are you able to hear me all right? I hear you perfectly. All right, fine. Uh, you're saying then the film was actually exposed. In other words, they gave a clip with imagery on it uh, right. as opposed to just leader, and, uh, and that proves uh, with chemical analysis that it was exposed between 1947 and 1949. Is that correct? Right. That is absolutely correct. All right. One thing, Michael, that many people are asking about here in the States is that um, many of the old films of that kind have little lines and streaks and blurbs in them, and they did not notice that in this film. Uh, because the film was never, never run for a projector. Actually, the cameraman developed it and kept it, and it never ran for a projector. Uh, and another thing is that, of course, Raven Tilly chemically cleaned the material before he projected it on Betacam material. Of course. Uh, well, that would answer that as well. Uh, this is beginning to look more and more like the real thing. Uh, um, I fully agree with you, and, and this is what we uh, try to do. I'm an independent um, journalist and, and UFO researcher, and I, I, I started to contact Grace until in February when I heard about it the first time, and my intention was really to find out if this is true or not, and I was very skeptic after I saw the film the first time on, on May the 5th in the May the 5th viewing and my intention was to uh, verify or to check out um, the cameraman's claim and um, one part of it was that in uh, July I went to New Mexico and I tried to locate the crash site, the actual crash site according to the description of the cameraman and um, just to check him out how good he knows the area and to see if you find any traces of any military operation, retrieval operation. Mm -hmm. And what happened is, um, first I got a very vague description by Ray Santilli, then I asked Ray, who always was very cooperative, um, to call the cameraman and give me a more detailed description. And after about five hours, we finally reached the cameraman and, and 
I called him back, and I got a very accurate description, and I followed the description. And um, it all pointed to an area southwest of the Coron, New Mexico. And after I reached the location, I found exactly what the cameraman described, and I called Ray Santilli again. And Ray Santilli called the cameraman again, and, and through the Santilli uh, connection, I communicated with the cameraman and got um, landscape features verified, like like a big rock gate, um, like, a, um, like, like a big boulder on the top of one of the hills around. Uh, and he said the crash happened on the northern shore of a small dry lake bed. Actually, we found the small dry lake bed, and on the northern shore, we have an excavated and filled-up area of about 50 to 60 feet in diameter. Clearly, somebody removed something and filled it up with soil from another area that clearly has a different color, a different substance. You don't find bushes there. You don't find big stones in it. It clearly is an excavated area. I'm, I have a background in archaeology and anthropology, so I, I know what I'm talking about. And I will go back to this area. Then I come back to the USA and this fall, and we plan actually an archaeological dig. We want to find out the profile of the uh, filled-up area, how deep it goes, if we find any tectiles, because the cameraman said the object was so hot, but it, it turned sand into glass. The sand was actually melting, and we tried to find any tectiles, and we tried to find traces of a military operation, tin cans or whatever. Maybe we found something datable. All right. Might we have the name of the FBI, FBI analyst one more time, please? Bob Schell. Bob Schell. And actually, he is also an editor of many major photo magazines all over the world. He's the author of 14 special books on photography, including the Canon Compendium and the most important book about Canon cameras. He is editor and phototechnical advisor of Shutterback, PhotoPro, Outdoor Nature Photography, and many other um, photographic magazines. Actually, he started in the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, working for them, and then he specialized in technical photography. He is a professional um, photographer, and he is especially the phototechnical advisor and phototechnical advisor of the FBI and other government agencies in Washington. Well, Michael, uh, we're very short on time, but you have given us big news and um, especially just the day before it is to be rebroadcast here with new footage we don't know what kind of new footage here in america on fox so i want to go to here i would like to thank you especially for being there at three o'clock in the morning and if you would put linda on for us for just a moment uh, once again of course and thank you very much Art. thank you thank you michael hi art okay linda that's what i would call breaking news Yes, I think so, and I think that things are going to continue to unravel and unfold in this story because while we were here in this weekend, uh, we were receiving uh, information, and I think it's going to continue over this week, and I would say to uh, everyone, here is a good example of how everyone seems to be rushing to different areas of judgment, either for or against, yes. and right now more and more information seems to be supporting that there's something highly unusual about this film and what none of us know is what exactly is this humanoid 
which crash did it come from? The cameraman himself in his own statement sent to Centilli says that he was taken to a site 10 miles southwest of Socorro, between Socorro and Magdalena, not at the Corona Roswell crash site. Understood. This is not saying that, it did, that there's not a Corona Roswell site. What this is implying is more than one crash, more than one collection of bodies, and my guess is, Art, that over the next 12 months, at some point, more footage is going to be released, possibly of a completely different type of alien. We may be in the beginning of the cracking, of finally the cracking on this crash and retrieval stuff, but what is so odd to all of us is the first humanoid out in television and everything else has six fingers and six toes, and it doesn't match any of the other descriptions in government documents. Indeed, Aunt. All right, Linda, uh, I've got to go, but I assume next week uh, it will be from Italy. Is that correct? That's right. Well, Linda, so, I've got to get out of here. Have a good flight. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the big breaking news. Yeah, thanks. Uh, take care, Linda. And uh, to your guest as well, thank you. Uh, and that is news. We'll be back. You don't have to put up with it. What am I talking about? Hard, foul water. That's right. Hard water gets into everything, fouls it up. You know what I mean, the white, scaly stuff that sticks to about everything, including even your hair, your skin. Yell. I see. What do you yell? The weather, the news, whatever. And people could hear this? Not at first, but then I started using a megaphone, a big one people could hear for blocks. So what if people didn't want to hear what you were saying? Some people expressed that concern, so then I invented something for that. And that was? Earplugs. But people preferred radio. Go figure. Now it's everywhere, in cars and elevators, strapped to their heads, uh -huh. music, news, comedy, talk shows. I had the very first talk show. You Did know? you really? Yeah, people would yell up at me from the sidewalk. We discussed every issue of the day. Uh-huh, such as? Shut up up there! Get off the roof! And I'd yell back, Mind your own business! Entertaining, let me tell you, people love it. I bet, yeah. Radio, putting the world in your Listen ears. to me. Twenty times the antioxidant value of vitamin C. And I shouldn't really have to say anything more than that. Go to your library, get some material, study. When you're ready to order, call the people at Health naturally. Here's the number. 1-800-856-1119. Take it down. 1-800-856-1119. Health naturally. Now, for many years in this country, uh, there has been a great debate about um, uh, Barry, Gold Barry Goldwater and whether he actually uh, spoke to uh, uh, General LeMay with regard to UFOs and something held at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It's almost been an urban legend. Thanks to a friend of mine at KCMO in Kansas City, Mike Murphy, who just happened to have an interview with uh, Barry Goldwater, we got Barry Goldwater's response um, to exactly that question. You need wonder no longer. Get close to your radio. It's a little difficult to hear. It was uh, one of those interviews done with a tape recorder down in the middle of the table. But there is no mistaking who it is. I want you to listen to the following very carefully. An interview uh, of Barry Goldwater. Listen to what he has to say about General LeMay. But there's... Uh... There's all these conspiracy stories now that come out, and the greatest one of all, and now I don't know whether this is folklore, whether this is true, but I've been a flying saucer fan since I was a little kid. 
I used to know. I used to know Major Donald Kehoe. Was, his mother used to live next door to us. So back in the 40s, he came out with flying saucers are real and all these books. So I'm a little kid, and I've been with this all my life. And maybe this is folklore, but the story is you tried to find something out about the Roswell crash. No. And is I, that true? I, I know that in at Wright Patterson Field, the Air Force had, and I have to assume it's still there, had a room, I think they called the blue room or the green room, in which was assembled all of the information that the Air Force had put together on UFOs. So I called my friend Kurt LeMay one day. And I said, what about this, Kurt? Can I see the stuff in there? Or he cussed me out in every poor little word. Do you remember what he said? I can't repeat it. <laughs> he said, don't ever ask me that again, and don't ever talk about it to anybody. I don't want to hear you ever mention it. Now, I... I, I can't say, I won't sit here and say I believe in UFOs, but I can tell you this. There's about two billion planets in this universe that we know about. How many other universes are there? We don't know. Nobody can tell me that this is the only planet of two billion on which there are living things like people. All right, well, there you've got it. In the words of Barry Goldwater, no more an urban legend, now you know he said it. Imagine that as a response to a U.S. senator from a U.S. Air Force general. Imagine that. John Anthony West is a writer and independent Egyptologist who has been studying and writing about ancient Egypt for nearly three decades. He is the foremost exponent of the symbolist school of Egyptology, which sees and demonstrates an ancient sacred science where modern academics see mainly just superstition. His work redating the great sphinx of Giza via geology, proving it must be at least 10,000 years old or older, was the subject of a 1993 NBC special, The Mystery of the Sphinx, hosted, you'll recall, perhaps, by Charleston Heston. Uh, Charlton Heston, uh, that was viewed by 30 million people. Now, this was one of the most successful documentaries ever shown has escalated into a heated international scholarly controversy. He won an Emmy in 1993 for best research for his work on the video and the show itself, which was actually nominated for best documentary program. The BBC subsequently produced its own version of that show for its prestigious and popular science series, Time Watch. Retitled Age of the Sphinx, the show recorded the second highest ratings of any Time Watch episode, generated still further controversy in the English press. His nonfiction books include Serpent in the Sky, The High Wisdom of Ancient Egypt.
a detailed examination of the symbolist interpretation of Egypt. The Traveler's Key to Ancient Egypt and the Case for Astrology. He's also written a book of short stories, a novel, plays, a film. His essays and criticism have appeared in the New York Times. He is presently at work on a book devoted to his work on the Great Sphinx. Now, here is John Anthony West. Uh, John, uh, welcome to the program. Why, right, thank you, Art. Pleasure to be on. You're in uh, Athens, New York, I guess, eh? That's right, Athens, New York. John, um, how in the world did you get started or even interested in all of this? Well, it wasn't actually. Long story, but I'll cut it short, even though we've got two and a half hours on. Um, I initially started out as writer, novelist, playwright, screenwriter, and so on. Got very interested while I was living in Spain back in the early 60s in ancient science, ancient religion, mysticism, and so on. Had a novel published in England and got very friendly with my editor, who was a Cambridge-trained mathematician turned publisher. And we were drinking in a pub one day, and the subject of astrology came up. And it was a subject I'd studied in some depth, but it wasn't my favorite subject. Anyway, subject of astrology came up. He said, that's a lot of rubbish. And I said, well, actually, it isn't. There's a certain amount of, of evidence out there. And if you collected it direct and indirect, you'd actually have a case. And he said, well, is that really true? Let me see. So I brought him stuff in. And he said, well, gee, this is, I'm not convinced, but I'm, uh, this is interesting. Would you do a book on it? And I basically said, well, yeah, you pay me some money, I'll do a book on anything. Mm -hmm. Being flat broke, like most writers at the time. And then all of a sudden, I had to get professional about this interest. And in doing the research for that book on astrology, called The Case of Astrology, originally my first nonfiction book published in 70 or 68 or something like that, um, I came across the work, the Egyptological work of R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch, the French philosopher with the unpronounceable name, and just stopped what I was doing and spent a year in the British Museum researching Schwaller, who at that time hadn't been translated out of French, included a, a chapter which really didn't belong in the astrology book, but it interested me so much, on Schwaller's symbolist Egypt in that first astrology book, and then that generated a lot more interest because, as I said, Schwaller hadn't been translated at the time, and so publishers came to me and said, well, would you do a book on Schwaller and this interpretation of Egypt? Well, that interested me more than the astrology, actually, and I said, you bet, and, you know, another five years to get professional in that, study my classical Egyptology as well, and then that sort of took over, and most of the last 25 years, one way or another, have been devoted to to Egypt with, you know, some time in between to get some stories and plays written and things of that sort, but mostly Egypt. All right, well, I take it your view of uh, the age of Egypt is very different than that of the traditional geologists uh, or Egyptologists, is that correct? Well, yes and no. Um, dynastic Egypt, the Egypt that everyone knows about, uh, of, the, of the temples and the tombs and so on, no, that, that basically arises around 3000 B.C. when the Egyptologists and the archaeologists say it arose. However, the Sphinx, and it's complicated, but the, the present pyramids actually almost certainly date from when they're supposed to date, about 2500 B.C. Okay. However, they are built, they either replace or in one case certainly are superimposed upon earlier structures and the Sphinx, of course, which is central to this whole to this whole investigation, dates 
almost certainly from Dreamland dialed 702-727-1222. This is Dreamland on the CBC Radio Network. It is indeed. My guest is John Anthony West. We'll be back to him in just a moment. The uh, deal is almost over. If you would like to get in on UFO facts, now to our guest, John Anthony West. John? Hello. Hi. Uh, John, give us a little primer, those of us who don't know a lot about it. What is the Sphinx. Ah, what is the Sphinx? It's a <clears throat> gigantic statue, 240 feet long. I think the largest statue on Earth. 66 feet high, carved out of solid bedrock, out of the limestone. It's the body of a lion and the head of a human being. Uh, usually assumed to be male, but maybe not. Could well, could could be female. And um, there it is. It's, you know, Titanic statue hard to imagine anybody doesn't actually know has seen pictures of the Sphinx, what it signifies, what it's meant to represent, big arguments about the ancient Egyptians themselves never. What do you lean toward? Well, I'm, I'm particularly in the work that's come out in the last couple of years, not just our work, but work of Robert Boval, the uh, Belgian engineer who's done all of this interesting astronomical work around the pyramids and Sphinx. And our dating, which seems to put us back probably around 10,000 B.C., unless it's the processional cycle before that. But it's, 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 it's the, an astrological significance seems to impose itself upon you. In other words, the, the body of the lion, hard to imagine that that's not the sign of Leo. And the head of human being, some people think it represents the cusp between Leo and Virgo. Another way of looking at it is that it that it represents the axis of, of Leo and Aquarius. I must say I'm I'm more inclined to that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but even without the even without the um, astronomical astrological interpretation, symbolically it would seem to represent the the lion is in all the great cat is, is always a, a symbol of in, in every culture in the Mayans and the Indians and so on in India the, the tiger and the Mayans. Jaguar, the great cat is always a solar symbol and seems to represent the the manifest power of the sun and the the human head would seem to be the ability of of the physical to become spiritual in other words to, to unite again with the with the celestial or divine source and so that seems symbolically the sphinx could be that 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 um, it was a, a kind of a metaphysical teaching in and of itself. All right. Well, there, there is where I want to interrupt you for a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, as we have evidence of the Egyptians remaining today, right. is there anything to indicate uh, that the Egyptians recorded 
anything from any previous civilizations as we are now digging into and trying to record what we can find out about the Egyptians? Well, depending on how you look at things. You see, the Egyptians themselves never recorded history. I mean, it's a very peculiar thing that we know as much as we do about Egypt from all of those temples and tombs and so on, and yet there there's virtually not a shred of history. Hmm. Mostly, the Egyptians are concerned with what my friend Graham Hancock in Fingerprints of the Gods calls the science of immortality. I mean, the Egyptians weren't really interested in facts the way that we are. The Egyptians were interested basically in the, in the in the meaning of our human existence, which is, yes. from their point of view, the return to the source. And, and so what, what Graham calls the, the science of immortality is what all of those temples and all of those tombs are dedicated to. So by inference, there are, there are, there are you know, kind of hints and mentions of earlier times that, that they kind of surface through the text if you read them okay, well, carefully. Uh, here's what I was leading to. As we record today on computers, uh, today on paper, um, and the Egyptians recorded on stone or into stone and on tablets, is there the possibility that a previous civilization of some sort did not record as we understand recording but was more of a metaphysical kind of uh, a civilization that may have uh, communicated uh, directly without words as we know them. Well, that's, that's also possible, but I, I think more likely is that they didn't give a damn about what we call facts. I mean, that, it doesn't really matter. You know, hi who cares about history? What matters is what you do with your own life this moment on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I'm inclined to think that that, that was more their focus Although they did write into things, and this is this newest work, just in the last five years, Robert Boval and other people are doing this work, they wrote it in, in myth and in symbol and in astronomy, basically. I mean, things are astronomically aligned, and one yes. of the ways in which we're able now, just, not just our work is geological, but Ms. Boval's work, which is astronomical, showing that, that temples and pyramids and so on were were aligned very, very precisely um, to certain stars and star systems and constellations at certain periods of time, and there's still more work coming out. I mean, it's, it's all breaking now. It's funny, we were talking earlier how, how things are suddenly happening in such a, such a barrage that you can't keep up with them, whereas 20 years ago it would be a bit here and a bit there, and you always wondered what was found and what wasn't. All of a sudden there's this ton of information coming through. And now... With the astronomy, it, it, it's getting clear that if you read the old texts correctly, what looked like funny stories and, and, and myths being told, if you read it correctly, you see that very often it's quite precise scientific information, often astronomical information, but to what end? Why that astronomical information was so important to them? That, to me, is the big one of the big $64,000 questions out there. Why should this very slow shift around the zodiac have been of such paramount importance to the ancients? In other words, why should they build a pyramid in such a way that it's aligned precisely to the cardinal points and drill a shaft? I mean, can't imagine how much work it takes to build one of these shafts that goes through the whole core body of the pyramid, hundreds of feet exactly precisely aligned 
to zero in on the stars making up the belt of Orion in 2450 BC. Why should they do such a thing? Obviously, it's of some real significance to them. In other words, yes, oh yes, they, they've got to know something that we don't know, and it seems to me. All right, while we're on the subject of yeah. knowledge, uh, we get faxes here. Here's already a faxed question for you. Actually, sure. I have some. Edgar Casey spoke of a tomb right. located beneath the feet of the Sphinx. Edgar, yeah, you bet. Edgar said that it contained the Atlantean Library. I wonder, right. I wonder if uh, you could shine any light on oh, that. Oh, yeah, I can shine a lot of light on that. Um, it's not a tomb, actually. It's a chamber. And there is such a chamber there. Our seismograph found it, and using a much less precise method of investigation, the, Jap the Japanese team before us also found some sort of an anomaly there. But our seismograph, you know, we had a chance to do some pretty detailed work show that there's very definitely a pretty substantial chamber, about 9 by 12 meters. That's, what, uh, 45 feet by, no, 40 feet, something like that, by 30 feet, something of the sort, under about <clears throat> under about 15 feet of bedrock between the paws of the sinks, exactly where Casey said it was. Now, our next big move is, I mean, this is part of our video. Um, the whole world wants to know what's in that chamber, including us. But so far, we haven't been able to get permission to go look into it. And, I mean, really, we wouldn't do that. I mean, we're not archaeologists. We're geologists and renegades, basically. But, you know, we, a, a team of archaeologists, either theirs or ours, could look into that. And prior to looking, all you have to do is drill a hole through the, through the bedrock and stick in a fiber optic camera and see if there's something there. Is somebody, is somebody going to get an opportunity, uh, do you think, to Well, do that? we hope so. Um, you can imagine that, I mean, we're basically, we're upsetting the whole apple cart of ancient history, and, mm. and so the people who make a living selling apples aren't too happy to have us around. Of course. On the other hand, you know, it's solid stuff. We're, we're dealing with, with highly credentialed geophysicists and geologists, and, and it's all done according to standard operating procedure. And, of course, it's very public now. Millions of people have seen this, and everybody wants to know what's in that chamber. So we're, I'm kind of hoping that that, um, that we can get, if not necessarily some allies over there, at least people who recognize that we, re we really are doing things according to a standard operating procedure, and, and there's some, if there's something in there we'd like to know, and it's, it's of interest not just to us, but to them as well, and to the whole world, and so we'll see. But, but in fact with or without the, the library of Atlantis in that chamber, we're, we're in fact quite certain that if we can get back there with our seismographs and all of our equipment, and there's a whole bunch of there now dating techniques where you can, uh, you can use the uh, isotopic dating. You can date stone in a somewhat analogous way to the way you date um, organic material with carbon dating. Whether or not that technique is good enough to give you thousands of years rather than geological millions of years that we don't know yet either but the, the the point is that there's a lot on just even even just a couple of months over there it wouldn't even be very expensive to mount such an expedition we're sure we'd come up with a, a lot of very very interesting information and as i said the the chamber is there exactly where casey said it was and curiously enough some of the nasty reviews that came up following our show so that West is completely discredited because he mentions Edgar Casey. The fact that Casey, in fact, predicted the chamber right where there is a chamber. I mean, our, you know, Casey is right. this information 
I mean, then called, what, mediumship, but now called trans-channeling. Uh, I follow uh, Gordon Michael Scallion. Right. And uh, very closely, he's been on the program uh, many times, and he mm -hmm. receives many of the same sorts of criticisms. However, his predictions uh, are uh, uh, eerily uh, correct. And uh, Well, some of them. Some, well, yeah, some of them, 80-some-odd percent. That's yeah. uh, pretty good uh, batting average. Is it, is it really as good as that? Yeah, it's really as good as that, yeah. And uh, Casey predicted it. You say it is there. Oh, I mean, there's no, again, you know, the, 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 the seismographs don't channel. Go <laughs> argue with the seismographs. I hear you. All right. If we should find, now this is all way into speculation, but suppose right. we found the Library of Atlantis, what would you imagine it might contain? God, I can't imagine. I mean, let's face it, if it were in a language, almost certainly we wouldn't know that language unless it's some early form of hieroglyphs or something like that. I mean, nobody knows who invented the Egyptian hieroglyphs or where they stem from or whatever. So if, if they're written, if they're written, we're in serious trouble because somebody's got to go around and decipher them. Mm -hmm. I, I would rather hope that it would be some sort of mathematical or technological um, something or another that would that would um, that would reveal itself by measure and geometry and number because that would you know that might not tell us a history let's say or a story of what there was but it might reveal to us in in a more universal language the language of mathematics and geometry something of that past civilization but from my point of view anything that was demonstrably and and provably of that kind of antiquity would simply be what's needed to, you know, to blow the whole, to blow the cover, let's say, of the whole Church of Progress, mm. which is one of my chief interests, really, is, is um, you know, great if we had the actual history of Atlantis, but as far as I'm concerned, one of the most important things is simply to to blow up once and for all the, the, the arrogance of, of modern humanity that thinks it can get away with the stuff it's doing to this planet the individuals and the people and the, under the guise of science and scholarship. Would you I then think... That think, could be discredited. Yes. That would be a very good... Well, yes, thing. yes, yes. But if it uh, if it contained that kind of information, mm -hmm. uh, John, um, I don't know how cynical you are, but do you think it would be allowed out? You know, I don't know. Um, it depends. You see, it, it, a lot of people say this because... you. information uh, that w was basically telling us we're going down the same end road that others have gone down previously. 
very quickly headed that way, there would be a very strong, strong force which would uh, not want to change uh, direction radically, but uh, uh, continue down the same profitable road we're on right now for those who are making the great profit. Uh, hold on one oh, moment, yeah. John, and, and I'll be with you, uh, back with you in just one moment. This is Dreamland. If you feel about the tomb of Ramses, um, is there something new uh, or some new discovery uh, surrounding the tomb, John? Um, well, no, this is yes and no. I mean, obviously, this is a, a major tomb of the sons of Ramses II, who was the great pharaoh of the, of the new kingdom. Supposedly, I think, 50 or 60 of his sons. He was a very prolific um, individual, that, that Ramses. I mean, it's one of the great ironies of modern history that, uh, or of modern advertising that Ramses, who had supposedly, I think, 66 wives and 190 children, had a condom named after him. But uh, there's Madison Avenue for you. Anyway, Ramses, this huge tomb, I mean, it gives you, interesting, that the, the Valley of the Kings, where they honeycombed every inch of this over the course of a hundred years, suddenly divulges what seems to be the biggest, one of the biggest tombs ever discovered. Right. Uh, what they find in there, if, if, in other words, if everything's been rifled, then no. It's, I mean, interesting, historically, here you have a great tomb that, you know, with inscriptions on the walls, presumably, it's not going to teach them anything new. If they come in, if they come, if they find any, any bit or piece of it that's unplundered, well, then they might come up with all kinds of marvelous, who knows, gold, jewelry, and things of that sort, uh, you know, similar to perhaps Tutankhamun's tomb. They don't seem to think that there's much chance of that, from what I understand. From my point of view, even if they found that, well, that's more of the same, and it's very interesting historically. It doesn't teach us anything new. To me, the interesting thing would be a text on astronomy or a text on mathematics or something like that. Well, who knows? I mean, you know, things are coming up all the time, so it's, it's certainly a you know a major discovery and and something of of intense interest. But it, I'd be surprised if it took our knowledge of Egypt any deeper or further into that aspect of things, particularly the the the, the depth rather than the extent that interests me. All right, John, hold on. We'll be right back to you. Uh, rest for about four moments. When we come back, we're going to open the phone lines. So get ready. Questions about Egypt or earlier civilizations, they come next. I'll simply pass it to you as the network passed it to me. Art, it says, just a reminder about the newsletter deadline. Sunday's Dreamland, now, in other words, is going to be the last time that people can order the October issue of the newsletter. Just uh, as, well, that doesn't relate, that was Coast. Remember, the issue will contain the photo of Hale-Bopp, the comet, a photo of Max, the crystal skull, and a large color photo of your studio, my studio, and a dynamite interview with Dr. John Mack from Harvard regarding alien abduction syndrome among many other interesting items. Uh, also, our subscription price increase goes into effect December 1st. In other words, call now. Now, my guess would be, it's just a guess, I don't guarantee it, that throughout the night tonight, they will take orders for the uh, newsletter. But I guarantee when dawn breaks, that's it. 
uh, they couldn't get them into the computer before morning, so I, I'm making an assumption here. I would be dialing right now. Our newsletter is twenty nine ninety five per year, and uh, you can get it by calling right now, as fast as you as your little fingers can move. One eight hundred nine one seven four two seven eight. That's one eight hundred nine one seven four two seven eight. Now back to our guest, John Anthony uh, uh, John Anthony West. And John, I've got one question for you, and then we'll go to the phones. Sure. The question uh, is the following: Is man evolving? Or devolving? Uh, good question. Um, I cannot say that I can answer it with assurance. All I can do is give you my opinion. Um, in one sense, I would say evolving in the sense that that the 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 processes of 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 life are organic and universal. In other words, everything is born, goes through. You know, becomes an infant and then a toddler and then a child and then yes. an adolescent and then maturity and then senescence and death and renewal and so on. So I would I would think that what applies to the individual applies to the race and applies to the planet and the galaxy and so on. Now, is a is a healthy six year old who becomes a drugged out adolescent evolving or devolving mm -hmm. or simply not taking advantage of opportunities that are that are presented i i think i think with us i mean we're in a we're in a big we're in a we're in a big fix uh you know when you look at ancient civilizations the further back you go i mean this is these people didn't think the way we do i mean they didn't have our kind of terrible problems they lived in a, in a different level of of serenity and 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 accomplishment than ourselves i mean we're very very clever but Incredibly destructive and obviously in a state of tremendous chaos. And it would, I would, my my guess would be that we're kind of we're kind of juvenile delinquents. So in one sense we have capacities that maybe the ancients didn't have, but we've botched those capacities and are now in a terrible pickle. Uh -huh. Well, the question, of course, is uh, even if we are evolving, uh, is it towards some sort of terrible? destination that uh, the same very same one that previous civilizations have uh, uh, have have gone to hard to say you know look we're 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 now just in the process of I think you know I think demonstrating that there was for lack of a better word call it Atlantis I mean th there was a high civilization that went down now why it went down that it went down cataclysmically I think that's pretty well demonstrated in two books in particular recently um, by Graham Hancock, Fingerprints of the Gods, that's a big bestseller in England and Canada and doing very well over here. It came out about a month ago. Yes. And that collects all of the information about when and where and how this happened. And another book um, by two Canadian researchers, Rand and Rose Flemath, called um, When the Sky Fell, which is out in Canada and will be out here shortly. And they... They basically take the work of Charles Hapgood, who was a historian of science who developed a theory called crustal shift, which, without going into a long song and dance, explains geologically and, and physically or geophysically what was responsible for this terrific cataclysm around the time Plato said it happened, about 9600 B.C. And this was a theory that 
basically fell through the cracks. I mean, nobody paid much attention to it. Though, Hapsburg somehow or another got into a into an interesting correspondence with Einstein at the time, shortly before Einstein's death. And Einstein thought that this was very plausible, difficult to prove, but, you know, that it was a well-argued theory. And even with Einstein's imprimatur upon it, it simply fell through the cracks. And the Flanath book, When the Sky Fell, takes Hapgood's work, and then there's been a tremendous amount of, of implementation of that theory over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. And... It sounds ridiculous to say it that the Atlantis described at great length by Plato and his Timaeus is actually what's now Antarctica, but it isn't. It, it sounds crazy, but it's not at all crazy. And my own geologist, and I'm you know in contact with all bunches, lots of geologists who say, well, look, this is you know difficult to prove at the moment, but it really isn't. You know, this is not implausible, and the, the theory accounts for a number of things that are otherwise inexplicable, like the mammoth extinctions around 11,000 B.C. and so on. So I, I think, and then, of course, there's our famous chamber between the paws of the sphinx. I, you know, I'd almost bet odds on that within the next four or five years, we really do have, we have stuff so sure that there were these civilizations, or at least a civilization back around 10,000 B.C., that it really gets accepted, you know, even by most bitter opponents at the moment. And then what do you say do about that? I mean, that went down almost certainly in a great theological cataclysm. Now, the legends, if you, re- if you look into the mythology, this is one piece of the puzzle, all the old myths and legends and so on. Now, a lot of them talk about, Bible included, Old Testament, that, you know, through man's iniquity and, you know, uh, you know evil and blah, 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 and sin, that the whole thing went kaput and so forth and so on now okay you look at this from a rationalist point of view looks absurd however from a totally other point of view there's some very interesting work being done now by some very brainy guys at, at, at Princeton and other 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 universities um, there's the next uh, an um, organization called the SSE the Society for Scientific Exploration and Chuck my geologist and myself gave a lecture there one of the presentations at a recent meeting. But these people are interested in, they, they're looking into, and with using very hard-nosed scientific methods, things like the psychokinesis and, and uh, telepathy and so on, and they're finding out, using very delicate instrumentation, that it is in fact possible and provable that, that you can influence effectively the, the throw of the dice by will and by, by thinking. Now, by extension, I mean, this is a very delicate scientific experiment, you know, that shows itself up in very minute statistics, but the implications are enormous. In other words, it's how we think and how we feel and how we behave. Would it be your view that these these, uh, talents, psychic talents, Mm -hmm. uh, are long forgotten or now developing? Maybe both. Um, Certainly certainly we don't in in the... as a general rule, have them, but there's there's lots of anthropological work about the you know the the older and more so-called to use the word in quotes. I, I wouldn't use it that way. Primitive, the civilizations and the societies and the tribes, the Aborigines and the Bushmen of Africa and so on, they seem to have these capacities still. And, and I mean, to them, it's nothing very special. They just have them. We've lost them. Maybe we're in the process of of of. Um, Reconnecting. Yeah, well, it looks that way. In other words, a lot of this stuff 
Hard to judge. I mean, now everybody you know, everyone, you know, your, your local friendly neighborhood trans channeler is summoning up beings in the Pleiades and stuff like that. Now, I'm, I mean, I don't know how to take that with a grain of salt or how, you know, I just don't know. It's not. I do. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little iffy on channeling. John, you don't know. I don't know either. Let's go to the phone here and see what we've got. Oh, okay. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Anthony West. Hi. Hello. Yes. Hello. Where are you? Uh, this is Mike. I'm like to get that. Yes, Mike. Um, I'd like to ask your guest, um, if he's familiar with Richard Hoagland and some of his theories. Yeah, very much so. Sure. Um, oh, really? Friend. Really? Uh, really? Uh, and we what? all know each other. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you view, uh, Richard's work? Um. In, in so many ways, uh, particularly with the Cydonia region of Mars, uh, how do you view that? Well... Um, there's been a ton of work done on Richard's work. My, my feeling is that, obviously, I think Richard would be the first one to say so, the, the final proof of the pudding is going to be another Mars shot that actually, with better photographs, that says yes or no. Until that happens, the evidence is now, and there have been a lot of very highly qualified people who have been working on this, the evidence is good enough. So as far as I'm concerned, the burden of disproof is upon the opponent. Mm -hmm. um, with, with, that, with that kind of strong statement in mind, don't you find it a little curious that NASA continually resists um, uh, a closer examination of Cydonia, uh, even if there is another M Mars shot, as you put it? No, I don't find that the least bit surprising. I'd be surprised if we're the opposite. In other words, <laughs> the, the establishment is always and invariably... I mean, the history of everything is, is an establishment that doesn't want to change its mind for a variety of very interesting and deplorable psychological reasons. So the fact that it gets out there at all is sort of amazing. I mean, I'm quite frankly, I'm astonished. We're talking about the, the, um, the Santilli show before. In a way, I'm, I'm amazed that it comes out into the open because, you know, it's quite clear that when all of this stuff went on in Roswell, I mean, anybody, anybody who thinks that the government, I mean, my immediate reaction on anything put out by the government is that is not true. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm and, sorry to say I agree with that. Let's and and so the fact that they let this stuff out, given you know they have, if if the government is willing to do radiation tests on twenty thousand of our own citizens who didn't do anything, yes. they're capable of anything. So in a way, it's sort of surprising that it gets out there at all because you know. Who thinks this is a democracy? All right, John. Back to another call. Uh, okay. West of the Rockies, you're on with John Anthony West. Where are you, please? I'm in Boise. Boise, Idaho. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I uh, made a statement earlier about the Egyptians not keeping track of history, and I think that was an inaccurate statement because yeah. it was either the first or second Caesar, and they did hieroglyphs on, and one of the hieroglyphs picture of about him going up into the heavens aboard a spaceship. I want to know if he heard of this or... Who? Now, wait a minute. Wait. Was it the first or the second Caesar? Yeah. Now, went up into the heavens in a spaceship? Yeah. No. Wait. Hold on. One, if it's the first or the second Caesar, we're talking about Egypt. I mean, there's almost no Egypt left because, because under... Under the Romans, there's no independent Egypt. That the the civilization of Egypt was still going on. No, and, maybe it was the Pharaoh then. Yeah, but they're not. It's an interesting point actually, because the the the, the Pharaoh after death, his soul goes. The, the exact language is his soul becomes a star and 
travels across the sky in the company of Ra, who's basically the sun, in his boat of millions of years. Now, if you take this literally that he went up there in a spaceship, you can do it that way. But you see that the hieroglyphs themselves, translation is rather difficult. Now, do they mean that symbolically, that, in other words, that his spiritual body went up there, or do they mean it literally that it went up there as we, as Hard we, to say. Yes, well, as we imagine our spiritual uh, selves yeah, to travel Hard forth. to say. And look, the, the, the more... I mean, if you asked me that question ten years ago, I'd have said, "Well, I, I just don't buy the, the, the actual, the physical side of things." They're not talking about spaceships; they're talking about spiritual bodies. I still actually believe that, but the the evidence for, you know, for extraterrestrial life, as far as I'm concerned, gets better and better. So that sure the same words that I would have said ten years ago are, are definitely spiritual. I would now say, well, gee, not so sure anymore. All right, from Mike in Seattle, please ask your guest to comment on the city of thieves. These people live near the pyramids, make ah. a living, make a living by grave robbing and hacking statues to pieces and selling them about the world. Ah, no, that's not the pyramids. I think the, I think what you're probably talking about is the city of thieves. If, if I'm, if there's a, there's a little village called Gurna or Kurna which is near the Valley of the Kings in, in Luxor, which is the other side of Thebes, T-A-T-B-E-S, is, ah. the, is the ancient Greek name for what's now Luxor. And if that's what they're talking about, yes, those, those guys over the course of the 20th century had access to, they built their houses over, the cor over old tombs and foraging about came up with all kinds of, of, of they had, you know, secret passageways, and they found old tombs that, in fact, the Egyptologists hadn't discovered. And basically, back then, Egyptology was just grave robbing anyway. And so they were chopping bits and things off and selling them in the, on, the, on the antiquities markets and so on. And if that's what you're talking about, the city of Thebes, that's the this little village of Kurna near the Valley of the King. All right, John, hold on. Right back to you. Many of you out there don't know there is a new Senate bill right now, a new Senate bill, a real one. Not a modern American myth, though discussion about the new money has been that for quite a while. This, I'm sorry to say, is real. A bill that will uh, create a new money. Now to John Anthony West. Here is a fax, John. Art. Some studiers of Egypt claim that by using the dimensions of the passages of the Great Pyramid, the stream of time can be revealed. It was reported that by using the royal cubit as a measure, events in the past, like the birth of Christ, World War I, were in fact foretold, and that the measurements will point to the end. That's from Mike in San Jose. Okay, yes. Very familiar with the prophecies. I must say it's, it's the sort of thing that's kind of hard to disprove because you can jiggle around the numbers and come up with all sorts of things. My, my, my gut sense of the whole business is that I cannot for the life of me imagine why the ancient Egyptians should be interested in foretelling World War one or World War Two or who wins the Super Bowl? Mm. Um, you know what about the Buddhists and India and China and all the rest of it? It simply doesn't 
seem, you know, what, what about Egyptian history? They don't seem to have the birth of Muhammad in there, mm-hmm. or the, you know, or the, or the British conquest of Egypt. It just, it seems to me a very Euro- Eurocentric way of looking at the pyramid to do something that I don't think the pyramid was designed to do. But as I said, I'm willing enough to be proved wrong, but by jiggling around with those passages, it, it really is one of those instances where where you can make the numbers do anything you want. And at John, the same time, the numbers are very significant in the pyramid. Because yes. That, well, that's what I was going to ask. John, What uh, very simply, uh, what were the pyramids designed to do? Aha. Uh-huh. Well, again, since they never told us, we, we have to deduce it. Now, my, my sense of it is that that these really are gigantic technological spiritual instruments. I, I think that they are designed to facilitate a, to facilitate getting into certain states of higher consciousness, which is, I think, quite frankly, what I what I think we're on this earth for. I mean, we're what Shvala Delubich, who, designed, who worked out the what I call the symbolist interpretation of Egypt, which is my basic interest. We haven't got around to talking much about what this, all of this knowledge means and where it leads us, but my my sense is that what Egypt was talking was talking about was the attainment of a higher state of consciousness that is in in effect not subject to time or divine. And I think that the pyramid, not just the Great Pyramid, but the other pyramids on the Giza Plateau and at Dachur, are in some way or another designed to put people who've done their homework and are suitably prepared into an altered state of consciousness where they actually have these experiences. Is your, and I know is, myself. Well, can I just... Yes, you may. Not, you, I mean, I, you know, I lead trips to Egypt all the time. I mean, yes. most, most of my living comes out of leading trips to Egypt, and we always do a meditation session in the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid. Yes. And there are very few people who come out of that unmoved. And I've been in there on a number of occasions with people who were deeply skeptical and didn't want to know, and they were moved too. In other words, they were... They were not prepared. You know, lots of people go in there expecting something brilliant, and then they get something brilliant or, or, or unusual, and that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you get people in there who are determined not to experience anything, and they come out they shaken and moved, well, that's something else altogether. So, so I think that the purpose of the pyramids is when the Egyptians talk about, you know, the, the pharaoh, that question that came at me just before of going in a spaceship to the stars. Well, I don't think it's a spaceship so much, um, a physical spaceship. I really do believe that the pyramids are designed in order to give us access to these to these higher conscious or spiritual states symbolized by the by the stars. All right. Uh, we're, we're at our break point here, uh, John. Okay. Uh, my, what, the, my interruption, and I'm sorry I, I interrupted okay. you, sorry. was to ask you, whether that higher state of consciousness uh, had any parallels to what Mr. Monroe at the Monroe Institute uh, has been teaching for so long, and we'll we'll take that up when we get back. How uh, long will we be, by the way? Can I? Um, you've got about uh, seven minutes. Six. Oh, great! Okay. All right, all right. We'll be right back. This is CBC. Mexico and so on, uh, mainly Mexico are certainly newer than the ones in Egypt and they're they use they're, they're a, they use a very different geometry and mathematics and yet there are numerical relationships my my sense of it is that is that both 
then there's not a direct connection, I think, between Egypt and, and that earlier pre-Maya, Mayan or pre-Mayan civilization. But I think both probably stem from a common source, and which, which I think is that Atlantean civilization that went down around 10,000 B.C., because there are enough parallels in the way that they use geometry and mathematics to make me think that, that, that the same order of knowledge is there, but not a direct connection. In other words, ancient Egyptians didn't go over and colonize Mexico and then subsequently built their pyramids in a totally different way, even though they're pyramids. All right. Um, one more, and then back to the phone. Um, please ask your guest how he views the work of Zachariah Sitchin. It seems very relevant to his area of expertise. That's from Portland. Okay. Well, it's sort of relevant. I think Sitchin, I think Sitchin is, is definitely on to something um, with, I mean, particularly in, in dating the pyramids and the Sphinx as older and so on. Um, his extraterrestrial contact uh, theory, I think, probably has something to it, too. However, um, see, I'm not a Sumeriologist and an Asteriologist, so when he's talking about Sumeria and Asteria, I'm not in a position to, I'm not in a position to argue. However, when he's talking about Egypt, it, it seems to me, without going into specifics here, we don't have enough time on a thing like on a, on a, on a radio show, it seems to me that he's, he's making the, the data conform to what he wants it to say. Beyond that, he's effectively what I call a galactic materialist. In other words, <laughs> the beings from outer space, as it were, are just smarter and even more malignant people than ourselves and have colonized us to be slaves for them. And there is no higher consciousness, there is no meaning, there is no destiny. And quite frankly... So I respect his work in many ways. I, I find his philosophy and his conclusions repellent. Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps so, but is it not uh, consistent with history that the strong, the intelligent, those with technology enslave the weak, one way or the other? Well, yes and no. Um, for a while, yes. Ultimately, I'm not so sure. Um, well, maybe there is no ultimately, but uh, but but uh, in any given for the, for the time being, yeah. But sometimes there are periods where really it isn't just masters and slaves. You know, there are there are certain periods, ancient Egypt, at least for quite a long period of time, um, Buddhist uh, Asia for at least a few hundred years. There are periods of real civilization where it isn't all dog eat dog. All right. I mean, uh, not many, but they're there. All right. Uh, east of the Rockies, you're on the air with John Anthony West. Hi. Hi, Art. This is Karen in Houston. How are Hi. you and John? Hello. How are you? Fine, fine. Um, I've, I've got um, a little response to your question about the evolution of yes. mankind. Yes. All right. Speaking from personal experience, I think that can be gauged, um, and again, it has to be on the individual basis, on the level of answer given to questions asked. And when you continually have answers coming to questions that, you know, are just sort of not in the norm, then you go, wow, okay. Um, and, it, and if it's forward progress, then that's great. I can give you an example lot again. All right. All right. Um, I had a, a, a family member in whom I was talking, with, well, rather deeply with about a family problem. And in order to get a dramatic response from him, a yes or a no, 
uh, a very direct response. I had to word a question I had to ask about another family member and, and say it in such a way that I would get the right response, um, you know, from the heart is what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And so I had to be a bit abrupt and curt, but I said it. And then the person sat very calmly. But this dark brown-eyed person, his eyes flashed blue. And then he was very calm and serene, and then instead of getting a very verbal answer back, he was very quiet and got up and walked out of the room and came back, and his whole personality had changed. Um, I did, I've never seen this happen before where the brown eyes turned blue, but I knew there was something that was emitted there mm -hmm. in response. And so several days later, um, I happened to pick up a book by Nikola, about Nikola Tesla's life. Oh, yeah. And in the heart of the book, I opened it and I just happened to open it right straight to the heart of the book, the middle of the book. And he has a chapter in there on observations on the eye. And I'm reading through this. And are I you? Get the uh, how, how, I'm looking excuse for. me, excuse me, dear. How do you relate this to my guest? Okay, the evolution of things from the spirit uh -huh. and all this. Okay, Nikola Tesla had an associate who said that even in the broadest of daylight, that once the intellect is triggered, and you go straight to the the what it would be the the heart of the soul and the mind, that there would be a for an, for an instant, even in brightest day, you will see a flash of energy in the eyes. All right. Uh, well, thank you. Crystal Gale saying about brown eyes turning blue, too. Uh, any response to that? Make anything out of that more than I did? No, it was very interesting, but it, it, it's not actually germane to the question of evolution or has there been or hasn't there been. I mean, it's, it's interesting in the sense that there are moments of higher consciousness, and if that reflects in eyes that are brown turning blue, well, so be it. I mean, are there... Well are, are there, do you think that uh, arguably there are more moments now of uh, increased consciousness uh, or fewer? And, yeah. and, and our great technological uh, civilization, boy, we've got cellular phones, television, we've got the Internet, we've got the web, we've got all of this. Is this masking it and uh, 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 hiding it and uh, causing us to not raise our, our level of consciousness uh, as we should in quiet contemplation? Uh, and obscuring a message that we ought to be getting right now? Um, good question, Art. Actually, yes and no, I would say. Um, the technology in and of itself is, is, is deadening. In other words, anything that does something for you that you don't do yourself, um, you know, a, um, <laughs> a, lawn, a power mower doesn't build up muscle, but a push mower it does. <laughs> um, anything that the machine does for you yeah. is something you're not doing yourself. On the other hand, suddenly there is access to the whole world of knowledge, stuff that absolutely... I mean, a hundred years ago, things weren't available at all. I mean, you just couldn't find them. Right. Now a press of a button puts you in touch with a, a whole world of stuff that simply wasn't available before. So, in other words, if technology is understood as not a means, an end in itself, but a means toward an end, I mean, I'm from being sort of a really a neo-Luddite myself 30 years ago. I've now become pretty technophiliac in the sense that, I mean, I really think that the stuff is there to be used, and if it's used intelligently, it does open means of doing things. It doesn't 
still, anything that's of any value is something that you have to do yourself. No, no machine will teach you to play the violin or do a martial art. So you're not saying anything you're, that's of value. You're not saying good or evil. You're saying both. I'm not. I'm saying actually neither. In other words, if no. it's, it, it, it's a it's a it's a it's a mean toward an end. If it's used intelligently, it facilitates things. But if it if it if it's simply something, if it if it's, I mean, obviously. What's communicated is what counts. If rubbish is communicated, well, then that's what you're going to get. I mean, what does they say? What is it? Garbage in, garbage out. That's what they but, say. But nevertheless, as a as a means of accessing information, it's brilliant. However, information is just information. It's not understanding, and understanding isn't wisdom. The, the machine isn't going to give you wisdom. Only study and work and lots of stuff is going to give you wisdom. All right. But, uh, let's, okay. Let's go back to the phones. First time caller line, you're on the air with John Anthony West. Hi. Yes, hi. Hello. Uh, you know, in The Secrets of the Great Pyramid, uh, he discusses in that book uh, that the, once the pyramids were uh, faced with uh, granite stone and perhaps coated with a gold film and topped with a uh, with a crystal, and, and I just wonder if if uh, your guest has any information on that. All right, uh, it's a good question. Where are you, by the way? Uh, California. California, all right. Well, uh, wait, hold, hold on a minute. Secrets of the Great Pyramid, Peter Tompkins' book? Yes. Mm, I don't know who he's talking about there that says, one, it wasn't faced with granite, faced with limestone. That's anyway, the Great Pyramid. Uh, nobody's sure that, that, that it's thought that the, the very top of it, the Pyramidian, as it's called, <clears throat> had a coating of electrum, which is a, an amalgam of gold and silver. Um, yes. Now, the question was, would that what? Could repeat the question again. Well, I, I just wondered if you had any information on that. I, I guess the assumption was that it was at one time some form of radio, uh, for lack of a better word, radio transmitter. Uh, hard to say. Um, certainly it was once, I mean, it had a you know perfect coating of, of limestone, the top of it may well have had, you know, gold, uh, you know, gold or silver or crystal. Some people think nobody knows. There's no evidence it's gone. Um, How about a broader definition as conductor of some sort of energy? Yeah, that that you know, that, as I said, I mean, it, it 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 is it is in my in my understanding, it's hard to imagine, particularly when you're inside the thing. I mean, it it doesn't feel like a temple and it doesn't feel like a tomb. It feels like a an absolutely fabulous technological instrument of some sort that has a tremendous emotional impact. You see, if you go inside any of our technology, it's pretty impressive, but it doesn't move you. When you get inside the pyramid, you feel like you're in the inside of a symphony. It's very difficult to describe, but I mean, everybody has this sense. So, yes, it's an instrument, transmitter, a transducer, a condenser. Receiver. What, a receiver? Who knows? But it has this profound effect and when you go into that king's chamber or any of the other chambers and go quiet and get into a meditative state you can't do it when there are a whole bunch of people around I mean, it's like listening to Bach when you're in the middle of the Super Bowl <laughs> when you go in there and you really listen you get hit with something inexplicable and almost everybody gets hit and I think the only way you don't get hit is if you're dead inside if you're really dead you probably do get hit huh. I think that's what they were used for but so, yes, they're instruments, whether or not they're, you know, in the sense of our radio transmitter or something like that, who knows? But they, they certainly serve some some kind of incredible technological function that we don't really understand, that we're just beginning to understand. All right, John, hold it right there. We'll
now to my guest. We've only got about a minute before the bottom of the hour, so a quick question from somewhere out east of the Rockies. Where are you, sir? Uh, yes, I'm in uh, Montana. Well, you're on the air with John Anthony West. Uh, yeah, John, uh, this is a Transformer from Montana. I get the uh, Scallion newsletter, and recently he had a thing about the pyramid of uh, being a time machine. Mm-hmm. It was a large crystal bird in the, in the main gallery that was moved up and down to tune it. And I thought I'd ask what, what, what your impression of this was. All right. Hard to say, actually. I mean, you know, in, in, a, in a sense, I would, I would agree it is some sort of a time machine, but depends on what sense you mean. A crystal that's movable, we don't know about a crystal there. Is it there? Was it there? Impossible to say. You know, I'm, I, I simply can't. There's no answer to questions like that until, from my point of view, until you can actually demonstrate that. All right, your sense is, though, that I think you said the next three or four-year time period there will be great new discoveries? Yeah, I'm pretty sure there will be, actually, Art. I mean, just even, even I mean, our work is, you know, is very, in a way, even though it, it kind of blows all of history out, out the window, it, it's very orthodox. It's geology and geophysics and, you know, very hard-nosed science. And... Of course, if we find the object, if we get into that chamber between the paws of the Sphinx, and we actually find something that that the opposition cannot deny, that in and of itself blows all of history out. out. Blows all of history out. All right. Well, well there's, there there's a good line to hang on. We are okay. at the break point. You've got about four minutes. We'll be right back. This is Dreamland. at 1-800-618-8255, 1-800-618-TALK. First-time callers, area code 702-727-1222, 702-727-1222, or the wildcard line at area code 702-727-1295, 727-1295, in the 702 area code. Now again, here's Art Bell. The only number not given there was the east of the Rockies number anywhere is 1-800-825-5033. That's 1-800-825-5033. The 818CS radio by San Jean is arguably uh, uh, the best radio for the money. Uh, you can spend about $300 more and get a marginal improvement, but for the money, if you want Dix 3, one 800 522 Six, three. Back to our guest now, an Egyptologist, Sidney West. John, just before we take any more calls, I assume you haven't done it, so I'm going to try and make you do it here. You've probably got books. I know you've yeah. got a book. You've got videotapes. Yeah, I um, do indeed. Uh, so if somebody wants more info or wants to order your book or mm-hmm. videotapes, how do they do it? Well, I'm glad you asked that question, Art, because I didn't want to inject it into the thing and sound as though I were promoting myself. I, I understand. However... Uh, yeah, sure, of course they're available. Um, best way to do it is there's an 800 number, which is 800-508-0558. That's 800-508-0558. And ask for operator A, and then they know where the call comes from. Right. And there you can get either of my books, that Serpent in the Sky, which is symbolist Egypt, everything that we've been talking about, uh, the case for astrology, which is 
all of the evidence that says there really is something to it. And the video, of course, which is the, you know, the thing I won the Emmy for with Charlton Heston, and this is the expanded version, which is an hour and a half, which has a lot of the much more speculative stuff that we couldn't get on network television that has the Mars stuff with Richard Hoagland and the Edgar Casey stuff and a lot of things that aren't that weren't on the on the one hour show. And then if you want information about my trip, say that's what you want and they'll put you on to where you get the trip information. From. How much so, how much asking. how much, John, is the uh, videotape? Videotape is I think I'm not sure. It's either twenty four ninety five or not, or twenty nine ninety five. I'm All right. not sure. They one of the other plus the buses. They can find out. 1-800-508-0558. Operator A as in Alpha. Thank you. Okay, good. Um, and I hope you get lots of orders. Well, I hope so, too. West of the Rockies? Uh, no, I think east. Uh, you're on with John Anthony West. Hi. Hello. We're Hello. Mark from Collinsville on satellite. Collinsville, Illinois. All right. Uh, yes, uh, great guest. Uh, John, I've had your book for a couple years. Thanks. My prize possession, I don't loan it out. <laughs> and uh, I wish you would have elaborated more on the uh, Tonetta Rue in there, but it's a great book. Yeah. Uh, you said you, you're interested in astrology. Uh, yes. And that, that one previous caller mentioned such. Now, you're right on one thing about his, uh, he's a little scattered on the Egyptian stuff, but uh, he mentions the placement of the planets and stars and that. And, uh, and Art mentioned earlier about Halba. And uh, word has it, from uh, some people that work on the Hubble, that this, this thing is a planet. And uh, where'd so, you get where where'd you get that, please? What the uh, comet? You mean? No, 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 no. This caller said that uh, uh, somebody working with the Hubble has indicated this is a planet. Where'd you what, get that? What you're calling comet? Yes, sir. Hubble. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can call in a couple nights and give you a recording. Yes. And maybe uh, take it further. But that uh -huh. that is the word from one person that's working on the Hubble. All right. Oh, yes. And they okay. say this thing is 3,000 miles across uh -huh. or something. Now, it seems like something, you know, like Halley's Comet, that comes through every, I don't know how, how often. Wouldn't something this big have come through before? Oh, yes. Uh, we've got to sort of think about uh, Zechariah's section again. Oh, there yeah, are, there sure. are pre present estimates of uh, two to 3,000 year uh, repetition for, yeah. for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not, uh, you know, it's not impossible. I mean, God. Pluto is whatever it is, 360 some odd years, and they never would have discovered Pluto without, you know, without fairly major telescopes. So yes, I mean that's 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 not the part of. I have no argument about that. In other words, that's there to be demonstrated. I mean, I can't say yes or no myself. It's, it's really, as far as Sitchin is concerned, it's his it's his materialistic philosophy that I'm that I'm opposed to. Plus the fact that when it gets to Egypt. He's fudging sometimes. I mean, he's taking data, and it's not difficult to do this in scholarship. And, and unless you're really deeply involved with the subject, it looks as though it's bona fide. And if you know the text that he's talking about well enough, you can say, well, no, he's twisting it to make it do uh -huh. thus and such. Velikovsky does the same sort of thing. But, of course, so do the, so do the absolutely orthodox people. They're doing it all the time. What, so about, what about John Anthony West? I try not to, but you know, if somebody, if somebody, if somebody comes up and says, "Well, yes, you're you're fudging it here, or you're you're making it conform to your own specifications," I'm usually prepared to argue it out because I'm very conscious of how easy it is to do that. I try not to, but you know, everybody, it's ridiculous. As soon as somebody says to me when I'm on television or radio, and someone.